Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, January 16th. We're working off our Iowa caucus hangovers here. You're listening to the Mo News <laughs> Podcast. I'm Mo Shwaninu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. And we watch the Iowa caucus results so you don't have to. <laughs> Jill, nice to see you here in a late night. And the Emmys, by the way. And the yes. Emmys. Well, I mean, yeah, people aren't watching award shows really anymore anyway. So staying up late to uh, make sure uh, our podcast here is updated for you on this Tuesday morning. I wanted to say there were some surprises. Jill, I don't know if there's any surprises from Monday night, at least when it comes to politics so far. Yeah, so let's get to the headlines here. A huge win for Donald Trump in Iowa and a close battle for second place. Okay, in other news, the Houthi strike again, this time an American ship, despite multiple U.S. strikes on the terror group this weekend. The war in Gaza passes the 100-day mark this weekend, the latest on the war, and the status of the hostages. The U.S. Defense Secretary finally released from the hospital, but he will be working from home as he recovers. One state is suing to stop the merger between two of the biggest grocery store chains in America and the winners and losers from Monday night's Emmy Awards. Plus, Mosh has on the stay in history. Jill, we'll dive into some lesser known pieces of music history. When Jamaican authorities shot at Jimmy Buffett and Bono and Eminem questioned by the Secret Service on this day in history. All right, let's get to that top story. Donald Trump dominating the Iowa caucuses on Monday. Networks calling his victory just 31 minutes after the caucuses had even started. Some precincts hadn't even started to vote yet. Moshe, I know we're going to talk a bit more about that later in this podcast. As for second place, it's looking like Ron DeSantis finished in second place. Uh, Very close, though, with Nikki Haley, who came in third. Both had about 20% of the vote. Vivek Ramaswamy, he finished in single digits and then quickly said that he was going to be dropping out of the race and endorsing Donald Trump. Uh, Regardless here, expectations were high for Donald Trump based on the polls, and he met them, winning by a convincing margin, the largest ever, at least in the modern era, for the Iowa caucuses. Turnout was relatively low, likely as we've been talking about because of those below zero temperatures, also some of the coldest in the modern era for the Iowa caucuses. But Trump did get his supporters out. The last time that he was in a competitive Iowa caucus, it was as an insurgent businessman back in 2016 when he lost to Ted Cruz. Not even close this time around. Quite clear, Iowa Republicans at the very least showed they don't really care about Trump's many legal problems, including four indictments and charges that he tried to overturn his 2020 presidential election loss. Uh, Mosh, we did hear from the former president. He was jubilant. Uh, Apparently, he had asked his people to just get rid of the teleprompter. He was going off script. He thanked his family. He thanked the audience. And he started out with kind of this message of unity, saying the party needed to come together. It was a long speech, though. Uh, Mosh, what are your big takeaways? So, you know, we laid this out in yesterday's podcast and newsletter. Like, we know Trump was going to win here. The polls, by the way, shown to be pretty accurate. Trump, which is over 50%. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis battling uh, with each about 20%. It appears even if you combine them, right? Combine all the competition. Basically, Trump has the majority of the party here, or just a slim majority. And then everyone else combined basically got the other 50%. So it is still his party. 
uh, ultimately, his advantage has only grown over the past six months, despite, or I should say, because of the indictments that's really brought the party back around um, to him. Also polling showing that, you know, he can win again. And people have this nostalgia, at least when I say people, I mean, Republican caucus goers, Republican primary voters have nostalgia for Trump. So we knew there's going to be no real competition here. And this really reinforces the larger question is, you know, like, let's call second place a draw here between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. What is either candidate's path to the nomination here? Now, Nikki Haley has a good shot in New Hampshire of doing something. But then what comes next in the other 48 states, many of those states where uh, the voters look a lot like Iowa Republican voters uh, and feel the same way about Trump uh, in terms of nostalgia, in terms of favorability, in terms of this feeling that, you know, uh, we're going to put him back out there because he has been president before. Now, there is some time here in this early cycle. Uh, and when I say early, I mean through Super Tuesday in early March. That's when a third of delegates are decided. So mark the calendar here for the next basically six, seven weeks. There's still a shot, albeit a small percentage, that there's a different Republican nominee than Donald Trump. But what Iowa showed on Monday night is that right now it's still his party. And, you know, potentially the fact that the other candidates went Besides Chris Christie went relatively soft on him. You know, there could be questions about whether that was the right strategy. But at the same time, how do you go hard on Trump a la Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson, who we should mention, by the way, still in the race, <laughs> got 0.2% of the vote in Iowa for Asa. There's a story in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago that he was still running former governor of Arkansas. Anyway, needless to say, ultimately here, takeaways. If Trump was a 95% chance to be the nominee for the GOP, look, maybe take that up to 97%. You know, there are no real shockers here on Monday night. It does give DeSantis a bit of life here, you know, because it looks like he pulled out second place by a very slight margin to say, I'm going to go on. I'm going to skip New Hampshire where I don't really have a constituency. I'm going to go to South Carolina. But again, what happens in South Carolina? What is your path to victory? And that is something your donors will be asking. Why should I give you more money? And in the case of the Super PACs, millions more dollars if there's no path to winning here. Now, Nikki Haley is a bit different because she sort of solidified the anti-Trump portion of the party, which is about a third of Republicans here, not the majority of Republicans, a third of Republicans. So what is her route here? That'll be something one of the big questions we'll be asking. That's one narrative we're looking at. Moshe, it is hard to see a path for somebody else to win this nomination. If perhaps Nikki Haley can win in New Hampshire and then go on to South Carolina, where she was governor and does have a base of support, you could see a path that way. But I think to your point, it's looking more and more likely that Trump will be the nominee here. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because you also see sort of the state of the Republican Party and some of the um, entry polling, exit polling you saw from the media networks where Republicans stand right now. Immigration, their biggest issue. Been a big issue for Trump for a long time. So uh, they stand together on that. So he, he very much is in line with where the party is. Uh, notably, they asked whether uh, Biden was legitimately elected. 70% of Iowa caucus goers, of Iowa Republican caucus goers, said, nope, Biden was not legitimately elected. Only about a third say he was legitimately elected. Um, notably, also this number, two thirds of Republican caucus goers said that Trump is still fit for the presidency, even if he is convicted of a crime. Of course, he's facing four criminal trials in the next year. Um, so that is notable. Now, I heard the reverse, by the way, that Democrats, the Biden White House, will be looking at the third of Republicans who believe that Trump is not fit for the White House if he's convicted, and the 30% of Republicans who believe Biden was legitimately elected as kind of potential uh, places for them to earn extra votes 
in November, but still gives you a sense of where the party is. So we'll see what happens here. You know, keep in mind, we'll look at the calendar. Next Tuesday is New Hampshire. You know, if, if Haley can pull out a full win there, that'll be very, you know, it'll make for an interesting race. Still advantage Trump. But an interesting race. Certainly, she'll get a whole bunch of money and support from certain groups. Um, will that help her? Maybe not in her home state of South Carolina, but maybe in a Michigan, some other states where independents are allowed to vote. Uh, I did see that there was this report out of CBS. Uh, Tony DeCopel of CBS was at a precinct in Iowa where he noted that they ran out of ballots to allow uh, Democrats to re-register as Republicans all these people who are coming in to vote for Haley. And this was a precinct where Haley won. So clearly, you know, we've talked about this. Haley does have an appeal among independents, an appeal among Democrats. But keep in mind, this is a Republican primary. The Republican Party is choosing its nominee for president. And ultimately, you know, that's the party she's running in. And she can't just skip straight to the general election. And she's running as a sort of pre-Trump Republican of the Romney era, of the McCain era, of the Bush era. He's changed the party, and she's sort of, when you hear some of her stances, running in the pre-16 Republican Party. Is there 51% of Republicans willing to bring back that party? It does not appear so right now as of January 16th. One other note from last night, Jill, just because I was asked about it a lot on the Instagram account, the media calling this at 8.31 last night, 31 minutes into uh, the caucus. Many precincts, we heard from some of them on the Mo News account, hadn't even voted yet, and they were getting news alerts saying Trump won. Apparently, the way this works, it's very complex. The AP put out this whole statement based on entry polls. They did entry polls of people headed to caucus sites um, across the state. The numbers were so overwhelming, they decided to call it very, very early with like a couple numbers trickling in. There might have been just a few hundred votes in uh, by 830. Uh, but between the entry polls and that, they're like, Let's just call this thing. The larger question I think it has us asking is just because it was right and just because you can, should you in an era where we're coming off of 2020, people don't trust the media. This question is about election interference. And, uh, you know, you called it that early. And I just feel like that's one of those narratives. I think there's, you know, that should be discussed in newsrooms uh, moving forward, which is. We knew what the result's going to be. What did you gain by like not waiting the extra 45 minutes, an hour until voting was completed in the caucus sites to call the thing? And we've already seen Ron DeSantis's campaign come out and, and complain about this a bit. So why even give candidates that excuse or, or anybody or voters an excuse to have doubts about the validity of the election? I, I'm with you. I, I think that there is a real question just because you can do it. Should you do it? And we should know this is different from what happens on general election nights where you have the exit poll data or you're able to call races based on 1% or 2% of the vote in based on the exit poll data and the early precincts because at least the polls are closed, right? People vote all day, polls close at 7 p.m. or close at 8 p.m. or close at 9 p.m., wherever um, you live, and then the media makes its call. In this case, polls opened in Iowa at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. People are still sitting down. Some people arrived late due to the ice and the snow and the cold and logistics, et cetera. And they were still getting to vote. So it was open. And I guess I was told by some people, like, you're not supposed to have your phones out. But people, of course, have their phones out, right, and got these notifications. So it's just one of these things where it's just 
unnecessary, right? And and having lived that life at CBS and at Fox and Bloomberg on these decision desks, making those calls on election night, we always had a rule, which is like, don't call a state until polls close in that state. Give democracy, give voters a chance to have a clean process, um, even if something looks overwhelming. Like, even though we know, like, the Republicans are going to win Kentucky and the Democrats are going to win Illinois. Like, some things are very clear and those trends have been around for a long time and we know how the voters are registered, et cetera, et cetera. But still, some, you know, like, let the democratic process take shape. Um, especially in a time of election interference. Anyway, I won't um, hammer on this much longer, but that was one of those things where I'm like, come on. All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's speed read. But first, I want to thank one of our big sponsors this week, Factor Meals. If you're pressed for time in your house, you still want to eat healthy, still want to eat nutritious, and you want something that's easy and ready to go in just minutes, try Factor. They provide ready-to-eat meals uh, delivered to your doorstep, never frozen, straight into the fridge, uh, and then good for several days. They are chef-prepared, dietitian-approved. Factor prepares breakfast, lunch, dinner, smoothies, beverages, ready-to-eat meals, again, straight to your door. Uh, I've tried them a number of times now, so has Jill. Uh, Loving the ease, loving the taste, and of course, you get to skip that trip to the grocery store, the chopping, the prepping, the cleaning up, uh, and you still get all the flavor of a homemade meal. Right now, you can choose for more than 35 weekly meals. They also have to-go meals that don't require uh, being warmed up at all, grain bowls, salad toppers, etc. Again, ready in just a couple minutes. Head to factormeals.com slash monews50. That's the deal right now, 50% off for the monews audience. Again, factormeals.com slash monews50, the number 50, for 50% off. And if you're a longtime listener, you know we have been drinking AG1 for about a year now, especially with two young kids. I could use all the help I can get in the energy department, and that's where AG1 comes in. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. Each serving of AG1 delivers a daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, And it's a powerful, healthy habit. And it's also really simple. Basically, just one drink in the morning and you're covered for the rest of the day. AG1 has been continuing to refine its formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And it is tested for 950 contaminants and certified as well for sport. Again, I take AG1 in the morning and it's kind of like this insurance policy. A friend of mine who also drinks AG1 mentioned it. He said... He drinks it and he knows he is covered for the day, regardless of what else he eats. He knows he's gotten all of the nutrients he needs. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews. Check it out. Time now for the speed read. Starting overseas from ABC News, Houthi militants on Monday struck a U.S.-owned and operated container ship with an anti-ship ballistic missile. This is according to U.S. Central Command. The ship reported no injuries or significant damage and is continuing on its journey after a number of U.S. strikes this weekend intended to diminish the Houthis' capabilities The Yemeni terror group mounted several retaliatory attacks, targeting a U.S. destroyer on Sunday and striking that American-owned commercial ship on Monday. On Sunday, CENTCOM said that an anti-ship cruise missile was fired from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen toward the USS Laboon, that is a Navy destroyer patrolling the southern Red Sea. 
but that a U.S. fighter aircraft was able to shoot down that missile. Yeah, so things keep escalating in that part of the world. It comes in the aftermath of the U.S. strikes Thursday into Friday of 28 Houthi sites across Yemen. Administration and military officials said they expected that the militants' capabilities to launch attacks would be diminished by those strikes, but they anticipate the group will still mount a response. Uh, The U.S. saying the Houthis now have a degraded capability. So far, the Houthis showcasing that they continue to be able to mount attacks here on both commercial ships and military ships. There was a follow-up attack over the weekend by the U.S., but so far, not really seeing a deterrent effect on the Houthis. In fact, they appear to be energized by all of this and, of course, appear to continue to have a green light from Iran, which effectively controls what they're doing here. And so far, despite these strikes, there's still a number of major uh, commercial shippers that are still routing their uh, ships around Africa, uh, which takes an extra week or two, costs more as they are reluctant right now to go through the Red Sea, go through the Suez Canal, which is about where one out of six ships around the world are routed through, at least until this war started. Staying in the Middle East, this from CNN, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said over the weekend that, quote, nobody will stop us from destroying Hamas as the war in Gaza passed the 100 day mark. He said nobody will stop us, not the Hague, not the axis of evil and not anybody else. He was, of course, referencing the International Court of Justice at the Hague and the self-described axis of resistance made up of the Houthis, Hezbollah, Iran and Hamas. Israeli's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, echoed Netanyahu's vows, saying that the Israeli army, quote, is fighting the most just war in our history and will not stop until it defeats Hamas. Israel did pull back some units from Gaza for some rest as it anticipates that this war could last for the rest of 2024. The Israelis say that they have taken control of about two thirds of Gaza from Hamas. They've killed more than 10,000 terrorists or people associated with Hamas. That's about 40 percent of the total estimated deaths in Gaza. They say they have taken out 17 of the 24 Hamas fighting battalions in the first three months of the war. And it comes as several U.N. agencies put out a renewed call for more aid to Gaza, noting that it is just taking too long to get into the Gaza Strip, where up to two million of the residents have now been displaced. Israel is blaming Egypt and the U.N. for delays, saying that they have streamlined the process. Egypt blames Israel, the U.N. not pointing fingers And it comes as there were rallies over the weekend for the return of the more than 130 hostages who are still being held by Hamas after 100 days, more than 100 days at this point. On Monday, Hamas appeared to show the dead bodies of two Israeli hostages after warning Israel that they might be killed if Israel did not stop its war in Gaza. And Moshe, it's kind of hard to even report this stuff. It's a bit questionable because this is a a really sick psychological game that Hamas is playing as it initially put out a video of three hostages alive with captions asking which of the three Israelis being held are dead or alive and saying that they would reveal it the next day. Yeah, you can't even imagine what the families and friends of these people are going through uh, holding out hope this long and then watching these videos come out from Hamas where they're, you know, playing games with people's lives and people's emotions. Just a horrific, horrific thing by Hamas here. They would subsequently put out a video, by the way, late on Monday that purportedly showed the bodies of two of the hostages, two of the three hostages in that video of Yossi Sharabi and Itai Svirsky, uh, who had appeared in that initial video. It then showed a third Israeli hostage, Noah Argamani, 
She's the 26-year-old. You might remember her as she was abducted on a motorcycle. The horrific image of her uh, being taken into Gaza uh, by Hamas, uh, by a couple men on a motorcycle. They claim in the video that she's still alive. In fact, they make her talk about the deaths of the other two Israelis. Uh, sadly, Jill, uh, Noah's mother has stage four terminal cancer uh, and has been begging for her daughter's release so she can see her in person before she passes away. Uh, as far as the hostages, not much progress on any sort of renewed deal here. There was an agreement struck over the weekend through the Qataris, they're the mediators here between Hamas and Israel, to get medicine into Gaza through the Red Cross to the hostages. This would be the first time that's been possible in more than three months. It is unclear, though, whether Hamas is following through with this and whether that medication is actually getting to the Red Cross and the Red Cross is actually getting it to the hostages. Mosh, you mentioned uh, Noah Argamani and her mother, who has stage four terminal cancer. Important to mention that her mother is actually Chinese. She was born in China and has been asking the Chinese government to intervene in in helping secure her release, like we've seen with Russia and Vladimir Putin, who who was right. able to get other hostages out or allegedly got other hostages out. Um, and notable that at this point, they have either not intervened or, or haven't been able to do so. Yeah, it does not appear the Chinese are very aggressively helping here. And they do have an incredible amount of influence with both Iran and uh, through them to Hamas. And yet nothing on that front, unfortunately, for the family there. It does come, speaking of politics, there's reporting from Axios about the state of U.S.-Israel relations that comes uh, in the aftermath of Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State's visit to the region last week. Uh, the reporting is that there's renewed tensions now between the U.S. and Israel that President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu have not spoken in more than two weeks. And while the U.S. continues to publicly support Israel behind the scenes, uh, things are not so great right now. The feeling from Biden in the White House is that Netanyahu has not been following through on various U.S. demands. That includes the U.S. demand to wind things down in terms of the war by the end of the month. Uh, also, they're unhappy with the lack of what they see is a, a good post-war plan for Gaza, post-Hamas plan. The Americans have been pushing hard that uh, Israel work with the Palestinian Authority. That's the government in the West Bank. The Israelis, the Netanyahu government, sees the Palestinian Authority um, as corrupt, uh, as just as anti-Israel as Hamas, and does not want to work with them. The Americans telling the Israelis, uh, the Arab world is not going to bail you out here. They're not going to pay for the reconstruction of Gaza. They're not going to take care of civil things in Gaza. Your plans are sort of pie in the sky right now, Israel. So a lot of tensions, it appears, behind the scenes here. Uh, and the U.S., the Biden administration specifically, dealing with political issues at home as the progressive left has been very unhappy with his support for Israel. And given that it's an election year, they want to see this wrapped up sooner than later. So uh, their hope is that by November, Biden can reconsolidate the left. From the Associated Press, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was released from the hospital Monday after spending two weeks there to treat complications from surgery for prostate cancer. It was a diagnosis and a hospital stay that he controversially kept secret, even from President Biden and other national security leaders. Austin will be working from home as he recovers. And his doctors said that he, quote, progressed well throughout his stay and that his strength is rebounding. They said in a statement that the cancer was treated early and his prognosis is excellent. Austin is 70 years old. He was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center on December 22nd. He underwent surgery to treat the cancer, which was detected earlier in the month during a routine screening. He was released, but then developed an infection a week later and was hospitalized again on January 1st and admitted to intensive care. 
Yeah. And then for several days, as he was in the ICU, he kept that information secret from President Biden, from top national security leaders, from his deputies, etc. And so finally, several days into his stay, it gets revealed. And then it goes to the public. It's something we discussed last week. Now, Biden has discussed this. He says that Austin's failure to tell him about the hospitalization, he says, was a lapse in judgment. But he still has confidence in his defense secretary is not asking him to resign, nor he says would he accept his resignation. Keep in mind, while Austin was in the hospital, the U.S. launched the attacks on the Houthis. Uh, they took out a terror leader in Iraq. There's a lot of things going on around the world, which is why there's been so much scrutiny over this hospital stay, even though they say Austin was working from his hospital bed, he was uh, dealing with senior military leaders, he was having secure video feeds with the White House, etc. But the lack of transparency here has triggered a review by the White House on procedures about notifying the White House. It also uh, is leading to a lot of frustration on Capitol Hill. There will be hearings likely in the coming weeks and months about this, as both Republicans, but also Democrats here say they're not happy with how Austin has conducted himself here. From NPR, the attorney general for the state of Washington is suing the Kroger and Albertsons grocery stores, trying to block the merger of two of the largest supermarket chains in the United States. The AG is asking the court to grant a permanent nationwide injunction stopping the merger. The mega deal is worth about $25 billion. Kroger is the biggest supermarket operator with just over 2,700 locations. They also own Ralph's, Harris Teeter, Fred Meyer, King Supers, and other chains. Albertsons is the second biggest chain with about 2,300 stores, and they own Safeway and Vons. So together, they employ about 720,000 people. Kroger and Albertsons say they need to unite to stand a chance against non-traditional rivals like Amazon, Costco, and especially Walmart. Costco and Walmart sell more groceries than Kroger and Albertsons combined. Yeah, and Kroger and Albertsons have also been emphasizing they offer union jobs in contrast to these rivals. Uh, they were hoping to close the deal this summer. The lawsuit here, uh, filed in a Washington state court, may throw a wrench here in those plans. The attorney general argues that because the two chains own more than half of all supermarkets in his state, their union here will eliminate a rivalry that helps keep food prices lower. And it speaks, Jill, to your favorite topic, grocery prices. <laughs> There's a recent survey out that shows that the average American family is spending over $1,100 a month right now on groceries. That's average. Of course, depending on where you live, you might spend double that. And the concern here is that the two biggest grocery stores getting together eliminates competition. They'll continue to be able to raise prices. The knock on some grocery stores is they've been raising prices for profit while blaming inflation. Uh, and so we'll see what comes of all of this. The challenge here legally is not a surprise. The Federal Trade Commission over in Washington has been reviewing this deal for over a year now. And of course, now you're seeing action on the state level. And there you see concern not only about shoppers and the prices there, but also farmers, workers, food producers. Uh, and out on the West Coast, there's a lot of the grocery chains owned by Albertsons that overlap with the Kroger's. And so you see a number of Western states really uh, drilling down on this. Look, as we talk politics on this podcast and it being an election year, we know that one of President Biden's biggest gripes is that by all measures, the economy is doing pretty well. You know, when you look at it just objectively. Traditional measures. Yes, yes. by all traditional data points. Unemployment low. Correct. Yeah. The problem that he has, and I think that his team is underestimating, is what I talk about all the time, which is what it feels like. And there is yeah. just something about going to the supermarket and spending hundreds of dollars 
that makes you feel really bad. And that is money that you are not going to be able to spend in other areas. Um, and, and as we talk about inflation not being as high as it once was, these prices aren't really coming down. They're just not going up quite as quickly. I posted something on my Instagram feed talking about this, and I got so many responses from people who are like, it is brutal. It's my least yeah. favorite thing to do when you go food shopping these days. It's 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 real money, uh, and it is a fortune to feed a family. Though the reality check, everybody, is that there's very limited things a president can do <laughs> when it comes to a free market economy, right? It's We're not a communist system. We're not Soviet Russia, right? Where the uh, government imposes price controls on things uh, to bring certain prices down, etc. So he's sort of stuck in the situation. Now, as we talk about it, um, he could make a big point of opposing this merger and maybe win some points with folks saying, you know, I feel you. Because a lot of what presidents do while they can't control prices is to make you feel like they understand where you're from. And that requires a good communicator, and that's something that certain presidents have done better than other presidents. Uh, actually, speaking of grocery prices, we got to go. We can go back to the early '90s to the Bush Clinton presidential race, where uh, infamously George H. W. Bush, Bush the father, was at a grocery store uh, and didn't know the price of milk and some other items, and it showed he was really out of touch. And it came at a time where Bill Clinton, a young Bill Clinton, running as governor of Arkansas, really was able to speak to people's uh, concerns about the economy, uh, feel more connected to people. And so, you know, that's important as we look at this, both on an economic front, uh, but also on a political level. Right. They try to make these candidates relatable and sometimes it just backfires. I remember they had Hillary Clinton trying to fill up a gas tank or something. And it was like, when is Hillary Clinton, <laughs> at least at that point, when was she filling up her gas tank? Or I remember this. I was in Iowa in 2007 when uh, Barack Obama at the time, a candidate who was struggling to get his name out there and compete against Hillary Clinton, uh, complained about the price of arugula in the grocery store. And at the time, <laughs> arugula was seen and still is like, you know, an elitist type thing. Like, so he's in Iowa talking to regular folks and he's like, can you believe the price of arugula lately? And everyone's like, dude, where are you from? <laughs> To take this whole show back to the Iowa caucuses. And yet, by the way, Obama would go on to win. But it was quite a moment. Those lattes. I'm trying to think of another example. (laughs) My truffle (laughs) spread is just, it's getting so expensive. It happened with John Kerry in 2004, who ran a very close race against George W. Bush. You know, he's married to a multi, multi, multi millionaire with a private jet, Teresa Hines, the uh, heiress to the uh, Heinz ketchup fortune, right? And he had multiple moments where like, he could not speak to the concerns of the average American because he's not an average American. So we see this every cycle. And actually, it's one of the interesting things about Trump to sort of continue this is that despite the fact that Trump is a billionaire, right? And lives this, this lifestyle that is not anywhere near the average American, he finds a way to speak that makes the average person, you know, a certain percentage of voters feel like he's connected to them even though he's staying at Mar-a-Lago and he's staying at his other resort and he's flying private and he has multiple golf courses. So it's not just your own experience, but it's how you talk about it. And finally, from Variety, the 75th Emmy Awards took place Monday night in LA. Now, you're wondering why they're happening in January. Typically, they happen in September. But remember the Hollywood strike? also meant that the Emmys got postponed. So they found it took place last night. The host was Anthony Anderson of Blackish. If you watched the Golden Globes last week, some of these names should come as no surprise. Succession and The Bear both crushed it last night with six wins each. 
including winning the respective prizes for Outstanding Drama in the case of Succession and Outstanding Comedy in the case of The Bear. One highlight, Christina Applegate presented the first trophy of the night. She got a standing ovation from the crowd last year. Applegate opened up about being diagnosed with MS and that she probably wouldn't work on camera again. So it was a very moving moment last night. Uh, Another headline, Elton John is now officially an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, winning his Emmy here. He won an Emmy for Best Variety Special for the Elton John Live Farewell from Dodger Stadium. That streamed over on Disney+. Plus. As we mentioned, a big night for Succession and the Bear. In other individual award news, Quinta Brunson was the first black woman in more than 30 years to win Best Actress in a Comedy for her role in Abbott Elementary. She's the first to win the category since Isabel Sanford won in 1981 for the Jeffersons. Ali Wong also made history last night, the first Asian-American woman to win an Emmy in a lead role, in this case, for Best Actress in a Limited Series for Beef, which won several awards last night. And now we end, of course, on this day in history, on this January 16th. We begin in 1919. Prohibition was ratified by the states. Uh, Of course, it was a brief period of time where the U.S. actually banned liquor. But of course, there were a bunch of bootleggers, etc. It wasn't exactly well received, um, nor followed. Uh, And so just a few years later, prohibition would be rescinded by a different constitutional amendment. On this day in Broadway history, Jill, Hello, Dolly! premiered on Broadway. And we end here with some pop culture on this day in 1992. This is a famous performance of uh, Unplugged on MTV. Eric Clapton recorded Eric Clapton Unplugged for MTV. The album won six Grammy Awards, including Record of the Year. Jill, in the pre-pre-pre-Taylor Swift film era, there was a moment in time there in the 90s for these MTV Unplugged performances. Uh, Just the musician with a small audience. Right. There were not as many opportunities. There was not social media. So there wasn't as many opportunities to get to know these musicians and like the, the reason that they did made a song and, and what was behind the lyrics. Yeah. And if you missed a concert or, you know, you didn't have all your friends posting a bunch of clips from a concert because that didn't exist back then. So MTV was your go to. Yeah. So this was amazing. And you would learn so much about the artists and why they were writing the songs. It was not to be missed television. And Jill, one of my favorite SNL sketches is Will Ferrell playing Neil Diamond (laughs) with John Goodman doing VH1 Storytellers where he's like coming up with fake stories about like Sweet Caroline. (laughs) Anyway, check it out on YouTube if you're either a Will Ferrell fan or a Neil Diamond fan. It's it's or if you're neither. It's very, very well done. All right. A couple of the uh, stories I teased at the beginning of the podcast. On this day in 1996, Jamaican police mistook Jimmy Buffett for a drug smuggler and shot at his seaplane after it landed in Jamaica. Seven bullets, apparently. Nobody injured. You know who else was on board that plane? Bono of U2 with his family. Uh, So thank God, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Bono, okay there. As Jamaican police thought they were drug smugglers, apparently not having very good aim. And thank God for that. And in another law enforcement meets music headline on this day in 2018, Eminem was questioned by Secret Service about his lyrics in his song Framed, where he imagines Ivanka Trump murdered in the trunk of his car. Agents, after interviewing Eminem, determined he was not a threat to the Trump family. Big 90s movie, cult classic uh, for many of us who went to college in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Half-Baked, starring Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer, premiered 26 years ago today on this day in 1998. And uh, turning 44 years old today, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame, a number of other hits. 
Jill, he has still one award short of an EGOT. That is an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. He has his Emmy. He has his Grammy. He has his Tony. He's still waiting on his Oscar, but at age 44, I think he's got some time. My money is on Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> okay. If, if anyone can I, get an EGOT, it's him. I, he's, he's already knocked out the first three awards in his, you know, in his, just after 40. So he just has one more to go. All right, everyone, we did it. We survived the first official voting day of the election season. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And before we go, a special congrats to Jeff and Kelly Dollar of 1022 Productions. They produced this podcast. They just welcomed a beautiful baby girl. So congrats to them. Uh, So excited for them with their uh, two daughters now in the house family of four congrats jeff and callie callie posted a photo of ellie and their newborn side by side from when they were first born (laughs) and they look like twins and she was like these dowler jeans are out of control um and i will say that both beautiful beautiful girls congratulations to both of them and their new family and soon enough we'll uh have your daughters doing a quick closing message (laughs) we have a crowded closing message here so far it's still dominated by jill's daughter alex but soon enough when olivia can talk and then the youngest dollar we'll have them do some sort of medley we'll figure something out they'll have their own podcast (laughs) okay bye everybody thanks for listening to the mo news podcast